I'm Kate Fairweather, and I'm here with my friend Jerry Glover, and she's graciously become our very first corporate sponsor. Thanks a lot, Jerry. I'm super excited. <laughs> I, I love to spend my advertising dollars with great projects like this. I like to do things unique because I think that I'm unique and my businesses are unique. Tell me about your businesses. Well, I am a realtor by day trade for the most part. I enjoy that immensely simply because I do get to help a great number of people find their next stage in life and the perfect home to fit that. I am a Homes for Heroes service provider, which means that I am able to help people who help us, whether it's law enforcement, firefighters, veterans, active duty military, doctors, nurses, teachers, anyone that's in a service field like that, help them find, again, their their next stage in life and the perfect home to fit it. Being able to get a little bit of a cash reward back and they're able to just enjoy some benefits for doing what they do for us. But then my other thing is I prevent disasters, Kate, much like you talk about on your show. (laughs) That's good. Okay, maybe not disasters like you talk about on your show, but (laughs) I am an event planner. So I help prevent event disasters, whether it's a birthday party for your kid or a huge corporate event, just having someone uh, come in and take the details away so that you don't have to stress about those I think is immensely helpful and that's what I do that that's amazing because God knows we can all use some help if we're trying to throw a surprise party or something it's difficult it's difficult when you know somebody to actually be doing that and hiding it it's better to have somebody who can be completely away from it and surprise everybody that's right And I love doing things. I spent some time with a young lady on Saturday, and we were talking about her 40th birthday that's coming up. And within a matter of minutes, I would say no more than five, we had a complete theme planned out with great ideas and details about where to have it and some things that we could do that would make it a great deal of fun. And it was just, I love seeing people's eyes light up when you find that perfect idea for them. And that's that's really kind of what I enjoy most about that. So tell me about your Heroes Project. The Homes for Heroes is, uh, I'm relatively new to that organization. And I love it because it really does provide me yet another way in my real estate business to be able to give back to the community. And that is something that I try to do every day, uh, no matter who I'm working with to, to find the perfect home or to sell their home, because I, that's the only way I can do what I do. I have a, I think I have a service heart, if you will. And so being able to do things that serve others really makes me happy. So um, how can people get a hold of you and avail themselves of your services? Anyone is welcome to call me, first of all. My phone number is 806-881-6810. Again, that's 806-881-6810. And you can either call or text that number. Or you can email me at jerry, that's J-E-R-R-I, at jerry glover. Glover is spelled G-L-O-V-E-R dot com. So jerry at jerryglover.com. So jerry glover is all one word? Yes. Okay, good. Well, thanks, Jerry. And I think it's time for us to get started with Disaster Tales. Welcome to Disaster Tales, where we bring you interesting stories and personal experiences related to disasters and the issues that surround them. I'm Kate Fairweather. My co-host today is Barb Lonsky. Hi there. Hi. So. Yes, um, let's talk about the San Francisco Dam in California, how it failed and why. So the San Francisco Dam, which wasn't in San Francisco. No, it was the St. Francis Dam. In the San Francisco Canyon. Oh, that's right. I know. It's kind of a little bit weird. It was about 40 miles northwest of downtown Los Angeles, about 10 miles north of the present-day city of Santa Clarita, California. Mm-hmm. 
And it was also called the Santa Clarita Dam, I believe, at some point. Right. The dam was designed and built between 1924 and 1926 by the Los Angeles Department of Water and Power, then named the Bureau of Waterworks and Supply. So it had gone from the Department of Water and Power to the Bureau of Waterworks and Supply. And the department was under the direction of General Manager and Chief Engineer William Mulholland. William Mulholland was a Belfaster. He was born in Belfast, Ireland. His parents were from Dublin. They moved back to Dublin. And he had a little brother named Hugh, who was born in 1856. Baby Huey. Yes. And William's mother died when he was seven. And three years later, his father remarried. And they put him in the O'Connell School that was run by the Christian Brothers in Dublin. Now, I'm getting most of this from Wikipedia, some of it from other reading, but just to give credit where credit is due. It says, after being beaten by his father for receiving bad marks in school, Mulholland ran off to sea when he was 15 years old. He became a member of the British Merchant Navy. He spent four years as a seaman, making 19 Atlantic crossings back and forth and to the Caribbean. He disembarked in New York in 1874 and headed to Michigan, where he worked at the Great Lakes on a freighter and in the winter at a lumber camp. As a lumber camp, he almost lost his leg in a logging accident, so he moved to Ohio and worked as a handyman. And when he was there, he got in contact with his brother Hugh, and in December 1876, they stowed away on a ship in New York that was bound for California. They were discovered in Panama and were forced to leave the ship, and they walked 47 miles to the city of Balboa, where they eventually managed to get themselves a ship to get to Los Angeles in 1877. As I said, he left school when he was 15, and so he wasn't highly educated. And he got a job. At that time, the city of Los Angeles had been planned under Mexican government, and they had been getting all their water from the Los Angeles River. And they had what they did was they dug ditches called zanjas or zanyas from the river to where they needed the water distributed. And they hired people that were base pay people to tend those ditches, who they called zanjeros, a water distributor, basically, or a ditch tender. And that's where Mulholland started with the water department. He was tending ditches that came out of the river. He continued, though, to educate himself as he went. That's right. In 1880, he oversaw the laying of the first water iron water pipeline in Los Angeles. So Mulholland would go home and he'd study mathematics, hydraulics, and geology on his own and became very knowledgeable in those. At that point that you were talking about, they transferred the uh, management of the water to the new company, Mm -hmm. which was called the Bureau of Waterworks and Supply. Right. And that was in 1886. He was promoted to superintendent. And chief engineer. Mm -hmm. Self-educated chief engineer. Yeah. So they built an aqueduct to Los Angeles. They were trying to take water from the Colorado River, but about that same time is when they made that national law about controlling the amount of water taken out of the waterways. Mm -hmm. And so they weren't allowed to take any more water from the Colorado River. So they had to find another source. And what what they did was Mulholland went into Owens Valley where there was a lot of water wars going on and played the ranchers against each other and managed to get enough water rights to where they they drained a lot of water out of the Owens Valley and it left the Owens Valley pretty much a desert. It dried up, but they did, that water all started going to Los Angeles. Wasn't that also the period of time when Love Canal was thwarted because of the change in the water rights laws? Right. That they were not allowed to divert the Niagara River? That's right. That's correct. The same time period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which we spoke about in our first podcast on That's the right. Canal. Right, number one, very first. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mulholland was in charge of the Calaveras Dam, and there was a lot of complaint from a lot of people that that dam was put up with not so much skill and a whole lot of um, hubris. There was a man named O'Shaughnessy who expressed the view that Mulholland and F.C. Herman, the chief engineer, were so intensely conceited they'd be immune from criticism. And he also thought that Calaveras Dam site, another feature which made objectionable impressions on him was the flippant manner in which young college boys in charge of the work and Mulholland with his swollen ideas of accomplishment have undertaken this very serious engineering project. He was not impressed with the, the manner in which things were done, the way they were decided and how they were shepherded, how they were managed. And... Mm-hmm. 
And at some point later on, they had a partial collapse of that dam in the upstream slope. It didn't release any water from the reservoir, but it was a pretty substantial damage. And so that was the history on Mulholland. He was a brilliant guy, but Mm -hmm. some people thought he had a lot of conceit and didn't think he could make any mistakes. So it was during the process of building the aqueduct that Mulholland considered the area to create the reservoir and to build the San Francisco Dam in the canyon. He looked at it. He felt like there should be a reservoir of sufficient size to provide water for Los Angeles and in case of a drought or if there was a damage from the earthquakes or fault activity that would interrupt the water from the Los Angeles Reservoir. He also felt like it was a good place for hydroelectric power because of the drop and that it was just a good site and a good way to manage the water into the Los Angeles area. They set up a big camp down below. They started to survey the area. They found that there was a reddish-colored conglomerate, which would be like a clay or a, or a sandy, loamy-type soil, and sandstone formation, and some gypsum, which is like a, an unstable kind of uh, schist in the areas along the side. That's what they make talc out of, talcum powder. Mm-hmm. Yep, and sheetrock is made with gypsum, too. And that below that, Uh, In the remaining portion of the hillside up to the canyon floor, it looked really different or drastically different. And so there was a lot of mica there. And mica is just layered, thin layers of rock, uh, very thin, like paper thin almost. And so it didn't really look like the, the lamination that it had would have been a good place to put in a dam. It was interspersed with talc and different things, uh, different other compounds. And although later the geologists disagreed on the location between the two formations, the majority of the opinion placed on the site was accepted because of the fault line being very inactive in that area. And so they tug tunnels, they did exploration, they did all kinds of things. And eventually he really determined that it was not a very stable place. Mulholland wrote that it says in in a Wikipedia article, it says, although Mulholland wrote of the perilous nature of the face of the schist on the eastern side of the canyon in his annual report to the Board of Public Works in 1911, it was either misjudged or ignored by the construction supervisor of the St. Francis Dam, Stanley Dunham. Dunham testified at the coroner's inquest that tests which he had ordered yielded results which showed the rock to be hard and of the same nature throughout the entire area, which would become the eastern abutment. His opinion was that the area was more than suitable for the construction of the dam. But Mulholland's own investigation showed otherwise because of the mica and the instability of the of the site. So anyways, they started to go on. The population started to really explode in Los Angeles area. Went from 100,000 in 1910 to 320,000 in 1920. And by the time they reached the end of that period, there was 576,000 plus people. Mm -hmm. So there was a really increasing demand for water. By 1926, they had built several smaller reservoirs, but he felt like this larger project would be very beneficial to the water right management in the area. He stopped his attempts to purchase land in the areas where there was a lot of contention going on, where there was a lot of like higher dollar construction people, you know, ownership of people who are wealthy because he didn't want to fight and litigate in court to get the water rights. So he kind of, it says that he ceased the attempts to purchase those lands, either forgetful or disregarding his early acknowledgement of the geological problems at the San Francisco site. And renewed interest in the area he'd explored 12 years earlier, the federally owned and far less expensive private land in the San Francisco Canyon was the site that they chose to build the dam. So there was concern. There was research showing that that particular area was really not stable, particularly that one side of the canyon because of the rock formations and that there had already been a landslide event in that area, which kind of would show that that potential was there, especially if there was a saturation of the of the ground. But for whatever reason, it was pretty much just put on the back burner and not acknowledged. It sounds almost like they did the research and found out what they found out and either ignored it or forgot about it, went on to another project and then came back 
and started this project without reviewing their own research, maybe, or just forgetting or wanting to ignore the possibility that it would fail because of the unstable ground. Is that what that sounds like? Yeah, and I think because of the success that Mulholland had with the Mulholland Dam, the Los Angeles Water Reservoir, mm-hmm. he felt pretty good coming off that project because it was, it was you know, functional and holding and it was a good, you know, ex- exhibition of his skills or whatever. And so it was when they started with St. Francis Dam, it was to be the only second concrete dam to be designed and built by the Bureau of Waterworks and Supply. So this was only their second project in that particular realm of construction. Mm-hmm. So the concrete construction with the step front, you know, it had the step down front on it. And so it was broader at the bottom. But the fact is the foundation and the basement for the dam itself was not very deep. And it was set on rock that was kind of, porous and there was a lot of percolation of water. So combined with that and the the rock formations on the side that were not stable, they really kind of set themselves up for a disaster. Mm-hmm. And the thing is that the dam was termed to be a curved dam, which, you know, was the design that they used on the Mulholland. But because of the size of this dam, the increase in the amount of the curve of the dam actually made it an arched dam, mm-hmm. which has a completely different set of dynamics for stress points and for potential failure points because it's a completely different kind of structure. So they started out with the premise that, yes, this one was successful. It worked. They kind of modified it as they went. They made it higher, 10 feet higher. And so that increased the water volume and placed more pressure on the top of the, the dam because it wasn't as thick at the top. And it actually caused the dam to kind of tip forward, and that allowed the water to get underneath the front, percolate, and then the sides started to pull away, and then the cracks began along the sides on the east and the west, and the water started seeping, and eventually just the weight and the pressure of the water. At 175 feet at the point above sea level, which was 1825 feet above sea level, the calculations for the amount of water in the reservoir were approximately 30,000 acre feet. Mm-hmm. Okay? So that was the divide. But when they went ahead and increased the the height of the dam by an additional 10 feet, it went from being 30,000 to 38,000 acre feet at 185 feet. Mm-hmm. And so those changes put so much more pressure on the top of the dam that it actually contributed to it tipping forward. When they did the measurements on the, the rocks after the, the failure, it showed that the dam had actually been pushing out from the top, leaving the bottom, digging into the foundation. Okay. Let me ask you, though, the original design of the dam sounds like it would have actually been adequate or could possibly have been adequate. But I know that during the construction, for some reason, they did raise that 10 feet above the original height and all the extra pressure from the water. They also didn't make, they didn't actually build the dam as deep as it was supposed to go. And they also didn't Mm -hmm. build it out as far to the front as they were supposed to go. Because when you have a dam like that, the dam comes down. And and this dam came down straight on the water side, and it should have actually come down and curved out at the bottom, so it was going under that water. That helps hold the dam in place. Mm-hmm. But also, there was a foot that came out. It's like your dam comes down straight, and then out in front of it, there's a big piece of concrete, and in front of that is like a down shelf that'll help keep it from... It's like a shovel or a hoe. It's like pushing a hoe through the ground. It helps keep it from from moving forward because you've got that foot that goes down, Mm -hmm. right? But because they changed the the width, the bottom depth of the dam and made that smaller and the height, Mm -hmm. the footer of the dam was shorter by, I don't know, several feet, as I recall. And then Mm -hmm. that downward turn, that foot that was supposed to help hold the dam from sliding forward that also was not in the right place after the modifications were made. And nobody that I could find was really right. sure why those modifications were made. Each one of those small mm-hmm. modifications that they did, which some of them seemed to be like cost-cutting measures, each one of those contributed to the dam being less able to hold the water behind it. And so the original design might have mm-hmm. been adequate, yeah. but by the time that they fixed it, 
it was pretty much doomed after that. Well, and the thing is, it says here, you know, this article from Wikipedia says the design of the St. Francis Dam was, in fact, an adaption, an adaptation of the Mulholland Dam with certain mm-hmm. changes made to suit the location. So they had to change the design because of the location because it was a wider opening mm-hmm. in the area that they were going from hillside to hillside, for one thing. And then it says that most of the design profiles and computations of figures of stress factors for the St. Francis just came from that adaptation. It's like they kind of went and said, okay, well, it worked here, so we're just going to go ahead and put it here, not taking into consideration that the construction, you know, the construction paradigm or whatever, you know, the the way that it was being constructed was different because the site was so different. Mm-hmm. And But they did that within the Bureau of Waterworks. I mean, that engineering and waterworks, they, they said, okay, this is what worked here. We're going to use the same design. We're going to do the same thing. We're just going to make it bigger. We're going to make it higher. But they didn't take into consideration that the undermining of the dam from the, the water percolation or the failure of the hillside. Mm-hmm. They began construction very quickly. I mean, it went from on July 24th, he was to submit his annual report to the public service commissioners and the preliminary work on the dam. The report was completed and they began construction five weeks later in early August. They started pouring the first concrete. And from what I understand, the concrete wasn't cured as well as it should have been. There was issues with not keeping it wet and curing it properly. I actually saw some photographs of some of the concrete that they poured, and it was like, it wasn't flat. They didn't even try to flatten it. They didn't tamp it to get the bubbles out to make it, mm-hmm. you know, to compact it. And it looked like pillows were laying on there, mm-hmm. concrete-shaped colored pillows. Right. And, the, and they really needed to tamp it down to smooth it out. They needed to let it cure and not mm-hmm. like, and when you cure concrete, you have to have a certain amount of humidity. So if you're in a dry area, you have to like cover some of it and let it dry more slowly so it dries all the way through. And they didn't do any of those things. They right. didn't they didn't tamp it, they didn't smooth it, they didn't I don't I and I'm sure they used reinforcing rod on it, but in the picture that I saw, I don't, didn't see any. Right. And the thing is that, you know, by adding that extra height to the dam, they had to construct an additional 588-foot-long wing on the dike in order to reach the ridge adjacent to the western abutment. Mm -hmm. And so there was extra weight then added. That's 588 feet worth of concrete added to the top of that without the foundation underneath it to support it. Mm-hmm. And it went out from the, the center or out from the edge of the dam out onto the hillside. And so it was self-supporting on that hillside, which couldn't take the pressure. It wasn't the kind of rock formation. It wasn't granite. It wasn't something that was solid. It was shifting. It had sandstone. It was mixed with mica and talc and all these different things, the gypsum. And it was too soft. It couldn't support that weight. And so the downward pressure in addition to the water seepage into the hillside just caused that whole side just to slide right off and fail. Mm-hmm. When it com- was completed in ni- and May 4th of 1926, so that was August of 25, it was completed in May of 26. That was pretty fast. That is very fast to build something that big. If you think about it, especially in that time period, too, because they would have to have brought in all of that excavation equipment and steam shovels and, you know, manual labor. Mm-hmm. The stair step face of the dam rose to, a, rose to the height of 185 feet above the canyon floor. Both faces up to the crest were vertical for the last 23 feet. So it went up in stair step, and then that last 23 feet, it went up just straight. So that was just a single layer of concrete. Mm-hmm. On the downstream face, the section, when they went in 24 feet, like they came out and then went in 24 feet, you know, to the, the depth that they needed. Mm-hmm. Then there were spillways. There were spillways that they created. They were 18 inches high and 20 feet wide for the overflow to pass over from at the top of the dam. They also had 30-inch diameter outlet pipes through the center section, which were controlled by slide gates to the upstream face. So they would operate them from the top of the dam, moving the, the slides up and down. Mm-hmm. But there were no there were no pipes or any kind of provision made for percolation under the dam. There weren't any vents or anything that would allow the, the water or the air that was building up underneath the dam to be released. And so the dam started to actually float. It started to lift. Now, 
when I was looking at those plans, they did have some perk tunnels underneath there, perk wells. What it is is they build a, a well and then a tunnel and then goes down behind the dam, it goes under the dam and comes back up in front of the dam. And that's to let extra water that's pushed down into the soil come up. But the ones that they made were, I think they were pretty much insufficient. And even with the perk wells, you would have still have the percolation under the actual soil itself. Right. Because it says that they collected water in the drainage pipes under the dam to relieve the uplift pressure, mm-hmm. but it wasn't enough. And it was carried a lot of the seepage from the dam. It's interesting because they had leaks from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. The water was started into the reservoir on March 12th, and it rose steadily and uneventfully for, except for several cracks that appeared, like temperature and contraction cracks. They didn't put any expansion joints in it to allow for any kind of heave or movement in the concrete. So it was mm-hmm. just a solid concrete structure. And so they did have some minor seepage initially, but it had been established by the engineering department and the construction crew that no contraction joints were incorporated. So they accepted a certain amount of leakage. And it actually, the seepage data showed that the dam was an exceptionally dry structure is what what was supposedly the the result of their investigation of that. But the water that seeped out of the dam from the pipe was put into a spillway and it supplied the dam keeper's house with water for the for for the season. So so there had to be some water. <laughs> when they first put the water, let the water back into the canyon and when they after they'd built the dam, there were immediate cold What they called them was like cold cracks. It was because the water was so cold. Mm -hmm. And when it hit the concrete, it cracked it. So that was day Mm -hmm. one. They had cracks and leaks. Yep, yep, they did. And they deemed that they were, because of the volume of water, they accepted those as being okay. Mm -hmm. But as time went on, they developed more and more cracks with more and more seepage. They tried to seal them up with oakum. Right, which is pitch and and fiber. You know, when they Mm -hmm. had cracks develop, they had a fracture on the western abutment and uh, they would stick it into the hole and try to seal it up. But then eventually it got to the point where they said, oh, well, don't even try to seal it up. Just let it go. (laughs) And it's just to me, it's like the handwriting was on the wall. You could see. And as the higher the higher the level got in the reservoir, Mm -hmm. the more leakage and seepage and cracks and and spills and things like that started to happen. And then there started to be a fracture in the position on the western side adjoining the canyon wall Mm -hmm. and then a corresponding one on the eastern side. So the center of the dam was starting to pitch forward and those cracks were starting to develop on both abutments on both sides. It was starting to mm-hmm. run downward. You know, they had a crack run downward from the spillway right down the center of the of the dam, too. And it was leaking water, and they were just kind of saying, oh, well, it's okay. And even up until the end of February, they said there was a notable leak at the base of the wing of the dike, mm-hmm. approximately 150 feet on the west side of the dam. Right. So that was like a big opening, and it was letting out. Four and a half gallons per second. That's pretty, yeah. That's discharging 0.60 cubic feet. Yeah. Or four and a half gallons per second. That's big. That's a lot. And Mulholland looked at it and judged it to be another another temperature contraction crack and left it open to drain. So then during the first week of March, they started to notice that it had doubled in volume. Mm -hmm. And then there was a bunch of erosion taking place at the site because the water was flowing through so fast it was eroding the concrete. Mm-hmm. And so they put in a drain pipe. They tried to you know, vent the water off towards the west abutment. But this, the hillside started to get really saturated. When they vented that water off to the west, the hillside started to absorb that water and it started to look in appearance like it was getting wet. And so they saturated that hillside and the people in the canyon were like, you know, this is not good. This, you know, they said, oh, it's just because we built a road along the side of the canyon. It's just mud, you know, in the water from building the road. Well, it was actually coming from underneath the dam, along the side of the dam, because the reservoir was coming through. When that kind of soil gets sick, gets mm-hmm. wet, it's like, up here we say it's slicker than greased owl poop. It, it's, it's just like 
the wet caliche, it's, it's as slippery as, as grease and it, and it slides against itself. Yeah. And yeah. And I'm, I'm looking at a picture of the dam right now before, and it looks like there's already a huge crack in it, but I'm looking at where they raised it 10 feet above and then they pierced that 10 feet with these 10 foot wide holes that were what, 18 inches high. Is that what you said for the, um, Mm-hmm. The drainage, yeah, and I can't. The it's, overflow, yeah. When you build something up there that's too thin and too high, and then you put holes in it so the water rushes through it, the power of the water coming through that is going to the instability. It's going to cause yeah. it. It's going to push it forward. It's going to drag it forward as the water comes through, and it's and mm-hmm. it's going to tend to because when it goes through a smaller hole, it speeds up. It gives you. It pushes more force on the top of the dam. So. Yeah, it looks. Right. It doesn't right. look good when I'm because looking at it. Because you're then experiencing the the Bernoulli effect, mm-hmm. where it, it starts to actually have eddies and flows behind the point where the water's coming through, and it it creates an erosive process along the backside of where the water's coming through because it has to speed up to go through, and so then it it produces that the extra force. Right, extra force. And opening at that point is the Venturi effect. Mm-hmm. The Bernoulli principle is where things speed up going through a, a narrowing or, an, or a smaller orifice. Mm-hmm. And then if you open up an air entrainment or an entrainment of fluid at the, at the back of that, then it'll help to dilute the pressure going mm-hmm. through. And that's all respiratory stuff. Yeah, I there you all that go. So this, <laughs> that always comes in handy. So this dam, it was yeah. put in with, with great with great confidence, but it was consistently poor decisions were made. The poor decision to either ignore or forget about the nature of the soil underneath, the poor decision to make it taller, the poor decision right. to shorten the uh, the base, just one after the other after the other, they just kind of piled up. And, and because he'd had successful dams in the past, then I think Mulholland had a little bit of pride maybe a little too much pride in it, a little too much confidence. Yeah, well, he took it lightly, I think. Mm-hmm. But he, he never consulted a geological survey or anything like that. I mean, and the topography was completely different than it was in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. You know, we're talking up in the mountains where there's a lot more varied rock formation. And so even if he he himself had questions about it, then that would have been like a red flag that says, okay, let's call in a geologist and let's really look at this and see if this is really a good potential site for this kind of a dam and containment system. And if they had done that, I think they would have found, no, they would have gotten, you know, a negative answer for sure. They were kind of under pressure to find a new place. Mm -hmm. I think that might have been part of it too, that they didn't want to have to look around anymore because... It had taken so long right. and the water demand was so high that this was the obvious immediate answer. Well, not only that, the aqueduct was failed in a lot of ways because it had been destroyed. They they weren't able to use the aqueduct to get the water to Los Angeles at that point because there had been so much terrorism or whatever you want to call it where people had sabotaged it and blown up portions of it that they couldn't even use the the aqueduct going into Los Angeles. So I think they were kind of like you say in between. That was the Owens Valley water wars that they were actually using dynamite to blow up parts of the aqueduct so that the water wouldn't go to Los Angeles. Yes. And the thing is, you know, I, I mean, it sounds kind of trite, but they were kind of between a rock and a hard place. <laughs> Literally. You know, they didn't really have... A rock and a not-so-hard you know, place. <laughs> they were hoping that they had a rock and a hard place. Right. <laughs> so, I mean, I don't I don't mean to make light of it because many people lost their lives in this disaster, mm-hmm. and it was a, a terrible thing. But I do think that there was some elements in that whole process, and we'll go through those a little bit when they go through the investigation process after the fact. It, they have some some pretty strong reasons and causes for what happened. Mm-hmm. But anyways, when Mulholland went to the dam site, he'd been called by the, the, the keeper, I suppose, or the people in the area. He was doing a routine check. He says he was conducting his usual inspection of the dam, and the dam keeper had discovered a new leak at the west abutment. Mm-hmm. And he was concerned, not only because other leaks had appeared in the same area in the past, but more so that there was muddy water in the runoff, which indicated the water was eroding the foundation of the dam. Mm-hmm. He immediately alerted Mulholland, 
And Mulholland and Van Norman, his his comrade, I guess, or his, his co-worker, began inspecting the area around the leak. Van Norman found the source of the following source, and by following the runoff, determined that the muddy appearance of the water was not from the leak itself, but came to water contacted by loose soil through the newly cut access road. So that was their excuse, even though it was coming from the opening in the dam, in the crack that was open in the dam, they blamed it on an access road that was built adjacent to the dam. And it was discharging between two and three cubic feet or 15 to 22 gallons of water per second. So, I mean, it was like flowing. And at 11.57 on March 12th, that very night, the dam catastrophically failed. I know there was one gentleman who had was staying in the path of the of the dam, but he had gone into town for a party or something. I can't remember. And as he drove back, he he yeah. saw he that it was well. failing, and he he tried to went back and tried mm-hmm. to sound an alarm, and they did get an alarm out. But mm-hmm. this dam, when it went, it went fast. The dam keeper's family. He had a wife and a. Son and a daughter, is that correct? I think they had, uh, he had a young woman that was staying with them, Mm -hmm. and they did find her body wedged into some rocks at the base of the dam. They never did find the dam keeper and his son, though. Yeah, okay. But the thing is, this Ace Hopewell is, I think, one of the guys you're talking about. He was a carpenter Mm -hmm. who was working on the dam, and he was riding his motorcycle past the dam about 10 minutes before midnight, and he said at the inquest that he could not see anything wrong with the dam at that point. Of course, it was dark. Mm-hmm. But uh, he'd seen some lights at the base of the dam, and so he was assuming that maybe the keeper was down there inspecting mm-hmm. and looking at the cracks. But that was 10 minutes before midnight. It, it collapsed at 11.57. So, I mean, he was like eight minutes away from it collapsing mm-hmm. when it actually went down. They did have a, a, a massive power failure at 11.57 and 30 seconds. When the transformer at the Saugus station uh, substation exploded, and they realized that it was the wires being pulled as the hillside collapsed, because mm-hmm. they were attached to the abutment of the dam on that one side. Yeah, and, and so below the dam there were there were camps. We don't even know how many people were actually there because some of them were itinerant workers that were up from Mexico. There was other work camps there that were that were there for agriculture. And what they know is that at least 431 people died. And it could have been as many as six to 800. They're not positive how many people were there. And, and out of those people... And the thing is that they arrived at that 431 figure in 1994. Mm-hmm that they were still finding bodies in 1994, and that's where the the number came to be, that 431. Mm -hmm. Immediately after the the collapse, I think it was in the 300s, but then they kept finding bodies. Many people were washed out into the ocean 54 miles away. They were washed downstream, and they found their bodies in the Pacific Ocean. Some of them they found, some of them they didn't. But since they didn't really know for sure who was right. staying down there, and there was over 100 children that were killed in that, 100 minors, M-I-N-O-R-S, that were killed in that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, you know, there was no warning. There was no, there was a warning further downstream. There was someone who, a uh, telephone operator who got information that there was a, a dam failure and she started calling everybody she could she contacted the police they went and knocked on doors they rang an open alarm and the people were able to evacuate but lost everything mm-hmm. so that was further downstream but initially there was no escape because they said there were 12.4 billion gallons of water that washed downstream mm-hmm. i mean you can't even begin to imagine and it pushed it pushed the largest piece of the dam that weighed about 10,000 tons, three quarters of a mile from the dam site. So the water was so, right. so high, so strong, and so fast that it pushed that huge chunk of dam three quarters of a mile. Mm-hmm. And the thing is that as the dam broke, it twisted that it actually, a piece, the piece on the western side, as that western side collapsed, the dam began to shift and twist and then the east side failed, and so it was actually like a contorted type thing, and then it began to wash everything downstream. And that's why there was that one section right in the middle that was left. They called it the tombstone because it was just like this one center section of the van, of the, the, the dam that, that was and left. And it looks exactly like a tombstone. 
A big rectangular yep, exactly like a tombstone. stone tombstone. Yep. Yeah. Right. And so the force of the water just washed everything in its path down the river. At the at one o'clock, the water was fifty-five feet high, flowing down the bed of the Santa Clarita uh, bed, cutting the power at the the Edison station in Ventura and Oxnard, and it washed away the town of Castatic Junction. Mm-hmm. At the 12-mile-an-hour flood entered the Santa Clarita Valley, about five miles downstream near the Ventura-Los Angeles line. The Edison people who were unable to escape, they had been issued a warning, but there were 84 workers who perished because they couldn't escape. Mm-hmm. At 1.30, the telephone operator in Santa Clarita, this is the one I was thinking of, she had heard, been notified that the dam failed. She called the, the California Highway to Patrol. And an officer who lived nearby began ringing the home, and she began ringing the homes in the in the danger area. And the officer and a fellow officer crisscrossed the streets and sounding a siren. And within hours, the streets were empty, but little could be done for the ranches and the lowlands. They were all washed away. All the but the people, fortunately, were were spared. It heavily damaged the towns of Fillmore, Bardsdale. Santa Paula before emptying victims and debris into the Pacific Ocean some 54 miles downstream. So that's a that's a long so, way to be causing destruction. When the dam first failed, that water was over 120 feet, 120 foot wall of water, 12 stories coming down the valley at 18 miles an hour, which you can't outrun. That's I mean, mm-hmm. that's almost un- unconceivable, that much water just mm-hmm. let loose. It hit the West Montalvo oil field at about 5.30 a.m., mm-hmm. at which point the wave was almost two miles wide and still traveling at six miles an hour. Mm. That was, it, it failed at 11.57. This was at 5.30 a.m. It was still pushing. And the bodies were recovered as far south as the Mexican border. Mm-hmm. And, of course, many were never found. The thing is that when the dam twisted, part of it fell backwards into the reservoir, mm-hmm. which increased the pressure of the water coming out, too, mm-hmm. because all that concrete fell into the water, displaced the water, and actually caused a higher wave to come out. It says here that the first casualties were caught initially in the, it says, 140-foot high wave, mm-hmm. which swept over the their cottages and just, you know, completely took everything out. They were asleep at midnight. Mm-hmm. Most people probably were asleep. Didn't even have any clue, you know, when they went to bed, never thinking that they would never wake up again. You know, just it's a thing about disasters like this, you know, mm-hmm. you just never know. Yeah. And when they happen early in the morning or late at night, it's people don't even know it's coming before it hits them. So right, after right. the failure and the deaths and the damage, they did, they had an inquiry. Yes, they convened an investigation. And it was very suddenly they, they convened it. Almost immediately. It says that, it says here too that, that Mulholland said, Mr. Ben, Mr. Ben Norman and I arrived at the scene of the break around 2.30 a.m. this morning. We saw at once the dam was completely out and the torrential floodwater of this reservoir left an appalling record of death and destruction below. Mulholland stated there appeared to be a major movement of the hills forming the western buttress of the dam, adding that three M- geologists after the fact, not before the fact, Robert T. Hill, C.F. Tolman, and D.W. Murphy had hired was hired by the Board of Water and Power Commissioners to determine if this was the cause. It was noted that no tremors had been reported or at seismic stations ruling out an earthquake as the possible cause of the break. So it was like a geological postmortem. Mm-hmm. Instead of doing it ahead of time and investigating it and looking at it and seeing if this was a viable site for this dam, after the fact, they said, oh, yeah, this wasn't a good place for it. <laughs> which is just, you know, all that loss of life and on property and, and you know, it just... Mm-hmm. Well, this, what I have here is it's the, the, the five conclusions that they came to, and, and we can talk about it some more, but they said, first of all, the type and dimensions of the dam were amply sufficient if they were based on a suitable foundation. The concrete of which right. the dam was built was ample strength to resist the stresses to which it would normally be subjected, Failure cannot be laid right. to movement right. of the earth's crust, which would be a tremor. The dam failed as a result of defective foundations. And the failure reflects in no way the stability of a well-designed gravity dam properly funded, uns- founded on suitable bedrock. So the foundation right. was inadequate. And we talked about that, about the mm-hmm. they had shortened the foundation and also 
with that type of dam, they really needed to have not have a flat back on it, but a curved back. And then the height of it, right. when you raise the height of something like that, the foundation needs to be extended as well, and it wasn't. And so mm-hmm. the fact that the foundation was not correct and the fact that mm-hmm. what the foundation was on was insufficient, the, the actual soil was so bad for that kind of thing, that those are the main reasons that the thing failed. Right. That's what they said. So they they said here that you know the the investigation prompted over a dozen separate investigations of the failure. And we I've read some of those. Some of them are really interesting. They're kind of deep, but they do indicate that the dam itself was okay as far as like the construction design, but not for the site and not for the type of foundation. Mm-hmm. They were sponsored by the governor of California, headed by C.C. Young and A.J. Wiley, and the Bureau of Reclamation of Boulder, the Hoover Dam Board, Los Angeles City Council, the Los Angeles Coroner, and others also were convened. Walter and Power Commission started their inquiry, as did the Los Angeles County Board of Supervisors, who hired J.B. Lippincott. Who was probably a relative of our family, since our maiden names are Lippincott. Yes. And then the Santa Clara River Protective Association, Stanford University, the San Francisco Civil Engineers, the American Society of Civil Engineers. There were others, such as the Railroad Commission and several other political entities who sent investigators and representatives. So this is a big deal. It was like the the most major, the biggest engineering failure to date at that time when it occurred. Well, at that time, it was also the most fatal of disasters. It had the most people killed, which was, what, 430? Yeah, 431. It says, along with uh, most of the other investigators, they perceived the new leak as the key to understanding the collapse. So the new leak where it was pouring out muddy water showed that that was was the point of final, like, the undoing of it. And although the commission believed that the foundation under the entire dam left much to be desired. The report stated, with such formation of the ultimate failure, this dam was inevitable unless water could have been kept from from reaching the foundation. So they were calling for inspection galleries, pressure ring, drainage wells, deep cut walls used to prevent that kind of percolation. So the mm-hmm. percolation was what actually undermined the dam, started to move it, the hillside started to saturate, fill, and then that's what caused the ultimate failure. Mm-hmm. They placed the cause of the failure on the western hillside, or the western end of it, which is where it it folded and and came in and twisted the whole dam structure and just kind of flipped it around and um, caused the whole thing to to fail. Because it was founded on a reddish conglomerate, even when dry, was decidedly inferior strength, which when wet became soft, that the most of, uh, it's almost always that kind of characteristic for that rock. The softening of the reddish conglomerate undermines the west side. And so they look at these things after the fact and say, this is what the problem was. But if they had been forward thinking, if they had had a geologist come in, someone who was trained in geology, and not to say that Mulholland was not a good person for the job, because obviously he'd had some successes, but it's that oversight and that, that other set of eyes, you know, so to speak, would have made a difference and they probably would not have put the dam at that site. Mm-hmm. So the reports concluded that it was, you know, it was the foundation was was inadequate and the dam failed because of that. And then in the aftermath of it all, the center section, which had become known as the tombstone due to a newspaper reporter's description of it, became an attraction for tourists and souvenir hunters. And so people would <laughs> go up in the canyon, they'd take pieces of the dam, they'd get on top of it and take pictures. And eventually, uh, by the mid fifties. Let's see. It says, to this day, the exact number of victims remains unknown. The official death toll in August 1928 was 385, but the remains of victims continued to be discovered every few years until the mid-50s. Many victims were swept out to sea and reached the Pacific Ocean and were never found or recovered, while others washed ashore as far as the Mexican border. Remains of victims were found deep underground near Newball. Newhall, excuse me, in 1992. Other bodies believed to be victims of the disaster were found in the late 70s and 1994. The current estimated death toll is 431. And so they, as a result of this particular thing, the end of Mulholland, I I think I'll just share that. It says here in this article, Mulholland retired from the Bureau of Waterworks 
and supply in March of 1929. His assistant, Harvey Van Norman, succeeded him as engineer and general manager. Mulholland was retained as chief consulting engineer with an office and received a salary of $500 a month. In later years, he retreated into a life of semi-isolation. He died in 1935 at the age of 79. Well, as I understand it, one of the reasons that he went into isolation was his feelings of guilt about what happened with that dam. Because he was down there that morning and said, oh, it's A-OK. And if you can look at that and say Mm -hmm. it's OK, then you either don't want to believe it or you don't know which means that you, right, are you not should the know and for you, the job. you don't. <laughs> exactly. And so, yeah, he he went into isolation because of his guilt and uh, about all the deaths and everything. Well, and the thing is that during the inquest, Mulholland, as he was quoted as saying, this inquest is a very painful thing for me to have to attend, but it is the occasion of it that is painful. The only ones I envy about this thing are the ones who are dead. So he wanted to be dead. And he said, whether it is good or bad, don't blame anyone else. You'll just fasten it on me. If there was an error in human judgment, it was human. I was the human. I won't try to fasten it on anyone else. So he acknowledged it. And he mm-hmm. he did have great remorse over it and was very sad about it. But the fact is, it happened. And mm-hmm. there was some legislation and dam safety legislation that came out as a result of that uh, particular incident. There's always legislation after it happens. So I guess we try to learn from our mistakes. Right. But you know, the thing is, I've done research subsequent to this about the condition of the dams in this country. Mm -hmm. And there are hundreds of dams that are in at risk for failure in this country. And they're doing very little to maintain the infrastructure and the integrity of those dams, which is a scary thought because the population is greater it's and there's more at risk for people and for loss. You can learn from history, but if you don't learn from history, you repeat it. And so it's something that even, I mean, I see it here in our state, you know, the infrastructure in our state is failing. Mm-hmm. I mean, the roads, the, the, the bridges, things are, you know, they close bridges and keep them closed indefinitely because they don't have the money or the resources to repair them, which is really ridiculous but well it is ridiculous as much taxes we pay they should be able to (laughs) exactly and that's a priority thing that's you know you can take money from other things and put it into that and if we started a comprehensive infrastructure maintenance program in this country tomorrow we would have tens of thousands of new jobs that were permanent because even if you fix this bridge you're going to have to fix the next bridge and eventually you're going to have to come back to that first bridge and fix that again and so If we would invest in our infrastructure, we wouldn't only help our infrastructure, but we would help our employment rate, we'd help our economy. It would help our economy in the fact that we had more jobs, but also in the fact that transportation would be easier and less expensive. And so it's all just a, it's, it all, it could all roll up into this big ball of really good stuff for us if we would just get off the pot and do it. I agree with you. I think that we do need to start investing in our infrastructure because not going to get better on its own. I know when I was in Lake Charles in 2010, there's a bridge that crosses there and it's an old bridge and it's an interesting bridge because as you drive across it, the decorations on the walkway on the side are actually two cross pistols. There's two, there's sets of cross pistols all the way across the bridge on either side and so it's it's and it's but if you go under that bridge and look up it scares you and when I first got there they people from from Lake Charles told me don't go across that bridge go use the new bridge they put a concrete bridge on the other side of town so I went and looked at that bridge Mm -hmm. but I went across the other bridge because those the people that live there are afraid it's going to fail yeah yeah so you know that's that's the thing that they if you don't do maintenance if you don't look into, you know, preserving what you have. And that's true in any area of life, I think. It's not just, no. you know, in the infrastructure, but in your own personal life. If you don't have forward thinking and preparation. If you don't take care of your car and change the oil mm-hmm. and change the tires and get them rotated, your car's not going to last. And so if you don't go back and make sure right. and fix the bridges and check for damage and, and make repairs, then that's not going to last. Mm-hmm. If you don't take care of stuff, it doesn't last. Right. So 
You know, right. we're like a big... We live in a system that experiences entropy, that's why. The second law of thermodynamics, <laughs> things right. will go back to their natural state. <laughs> I see that every time I look in the mirror, I'm going back to my natural state. <laughs> yeah, that's that's going there, exactly. Yeah, everything's going south. <laughs> but yeah, you know, we just, I don't know. I You know, when we talk about these disasters that have to do with man-made things, like dams and bridges and things like that, you look at it and think, well, Fire, it would be so fire. easy to not do that, even with the fires, but we have to learn by our mistakes. It seems like people have to die before they pay attention to it, and and that's yeah. that's really sad. So experience is truly the only feature. <laughs> it really Unfortunately. is. Unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you have to do it and go, sure. oh, that's not good. I guess I shouldn't do that again. The school of hard knocks is the way to really learn it, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh well. So the San oh, the San Francisco. Yeah. I can't. I keep saying the wrong one. The St. Francis Dam. It's a good lesson mm-hmm. in overconfidence, um, sticking to the plans, and doing your homework and research. You can't just you can't just throw a dam up anywhere, right? And oversight. You know. Having extra sets of eyes who look at things from different perspectives, that's important because you can kind of be tunnel vision on something if you're going gung-ho on a project, but somebody might have another viewpoint, like a geologist would look particularly at the, the structures and know this is not a good place to do this. You know? yeah, it's, so, it seems almost like Mulholland felt that his his self-education was adequate and he shouldn't need to have any other input because he knew. And when you get overconfident like that, then you do have problems with oversight. But to to his to his credit, though, he did educate himself, and he was in a position where his position in the water works or the water board was because of his experience and his knowledge. So he couldn't have been a dummy. You know, no, no. I mean, but he just may have been short sighted in that particular situation and trying to accomplish something great because it needed to be done and just cutting corners which yeah. people do and all and the he's time. not and he did is not the one that cut all the corners the people that actually did the construction mm-hmm. some of them made those decisions and you know that's right. it's just like one thing it's like trip trip wires it's like one thing causes another causes right. another and when you add them all up you get a yeah. damn failure you get right. a damn failure so <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. <laughs> well, this has been an interesting topic. I, you know, I've been, been interested in investigating and looking into it. This was actually a request to someone. One of our listeners requested that we do this one. So thanks for asking. Oh, okay. Yes. Thank you, listener, for asking. All right. So I think we covered the, covered the San Francisco dam failure. <laughs> the Santa Clarita, more information the, available. St. Francis. <laughs> yeah, whatever it is. St. Francis. Yeah. Yeah. San Francisco Canyon Dam, I guess right. it was. So and the St. Francis, Francis Dam, Dam and the, but, the um, Santa Clarita. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so if you can't find it with those directions, you're not going to find it. <laughs> right. Uh, All righty. Well, thank you. Uh, and I'm going to... Oh, thank you. It was enjoyable. Yeah, I am um, actually found a place that will edit these for me. I don't know how that'll come out. I may still have to edit them some, but for a dollar a minute. So if there's anybody out there that feels like donating a dollar for a minute of a podcast, that would be great. You can go to our Patreon (laughs) site, (laughs) Disaster Tales on Patreon. There's a link on our website. Not Patreon. Not Patreon. Patreon. It's Patreon. (laughs) So Patreon. (laughs) <laughs> but but yeah because we want to give a give you the best quality podcast that we can give you and that means we have to have good sound and that means that i Nobody am not a good editor <laughs> it takes me for freaking ever to do it to do one of these things it takes me like five days it'll take them less than two so i'll just send it to them and but I, we could use some help with that so if you like what you're hearing please feel free to go to our website, which is www.disastertales.com and see about becoming a member and supporting our podcast because we really need it. (laughs) 
We love you. Thank we you so do. much for helping us. <laughs> Disaster Tales theme music is by Stephanie Cerny. You can check out our website at www.disastertales.com, and you can contact me at kate at disastertales.com. Thank you for listening. Today's disaster tip is about how to prepare for winter travel. When I'm traveling around town in the winter, I keep a bag of cold weather clothes in the trunk. That includes hat, gloves, warm socks, and all-weather boots. I also keep a case of water in the trunk or the back seat. I figure that if I break down in town, I won't have to wait long for help to arrive. If I'm traveling long distances, though, I also pack a cold weather emergency kit. That includes cold weather gear, plus water, non-perishable snacks, emergency blankets, a first aid kit, a tool kit, jumper cables, a tin full of votive candles, a lighter, a shovel, and a bag of sand in the trunk. I use the tin with the candles as a heater in case the car breaks down. Just lighting one will help keep the interior of the car warmer. However, if you use this, remember to crack a window to keep from having carbon monoxide issues. For more information on preparing for winter travel, check out the website takewinterbystorm.org. They have useful checklists for all kinds of winter storm preparedness.